She's from wine country. She, That's how we she's say from it wine in Missouri. Country. Arkansas. In Arkansas. We're, we're Did you forget where I was from? Did you forget where I was from? No. Andrew, we're too close to our mics. <laughs> Did you just forget where I was from? No, I didn't. I was trying to tell you to get away from your mic at the same time as I was processing the... And again, uh, trying to phase me out. Here you are. Just get away from your mic. Don't talk so much. <laughs> Wine country. Hey guys, welcome to Take Me to Coffee. This is a mentorship podcast for the digital age. Uh, Take Me to Coffee is for the doers, the builders, the people who are making things from the ground up, just like you and me. That was me with my little hammer building something from the ground up. The best part of a coffee date is getting personal with someone who's been down the road before you. Yes, that's before you, so that they can tell you about how that road went, so you can do things differently or better. So this is your weekly chance to pick the brains of some super smart people. And soak up a whole lot of inspiration. That was me soaking up the inspiration. You're fired. I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> You're fired, Andrew. Let's, ju- let's just start nah. there. Wow. Oh, is that what we're going to do now? Just fire me before yeah. every single episode? I wonder how many times yeah. on this podcast I've been fired. I feel like I've been fired quite a few times. Well, remember uh, when you noticed that Emily, our producer, is slowly phasing you out of all of the intros and outros? Nothing's marked for you to say anymore. <laughs> oh, of course. The infinitely larger sections of orange and then this weird heteronormative blue that I have to read from. <laughs> That's not true. I actually picked those colors because orange is my favorite color, and I didn't know what your favorite color was. Did you know what? I always wanted braces as a kid, and now I'm finally at a four, as a 40-year-old man, I have Invisalign braces, but I wanted braces as a kid, and I was always so jealous of the kids who had braces with the different colored rubber, rubber bands around them so they I could like, those. self-identify. Orange yeah. and blue was my favorite combo. Really? Yes. I loved S- orange and blue. And you really just insulted me for making your lines blue in our intro and outro script? No, I'm just talking about (laughs) how you think that we can... Like, this is a very feminist-driven podcast, and we're we're open to all things, but you're the one who put me, a white male, in blue. You did that. But you like blue. Was it complete random happenstance? Was it complete happenstance? Yes. Okay. It sounded that didn't sound convincing at all. <laughs> what are you drinking in your coffee cup today, Andrew? My coffee cup today, classic, classic call, Intelligentsia House oh. Blend, Fair Trade, all day. Let's go, okay. That's the question: Is it ever going to change up? Or are you just going to really freaking stick with it and make Intelligentsia be a part of what we're doing here? I am a champion of consistency. I'm trying to get Intelligentsia to sponsor us so hard. I'm going That's so hard for them. It's true. I just don't know why they haven't called yet. That's the weirdest part is because I keep buying from them, and I just don't think our local purveyor here in Chicago is is listening. I don't think anybody's listening. I feel like the where we're sliding into is that we'll always know that, that Andrew has Intelligentsia in his coffee cup, and then I'm always going to tell you about where the fuck I traveled to that week and the coffee I tried there because, yet again, for me, I have just gotten back from Atlanta and I went to this uh, super awesome coffee shop in Decatur, Atlanta called, mm-hmm. what is it called? Dancing Goats Coffee Bar. Sorry, it's actually Decatur, Georgia. It's uh, outside of Atlanta. Yeah, that's, well, yeah. It's, yeah it's she doesn't, like, she it, doesn't know it's, geography. It's its own town, but it's Atlanta, whatever. It's uh, a suburb. Yeah, I get it. I anyway, totally get it. I'm drinking some delicious Batdorf and Bronson Coffee Roasters, which is a super cool place that like is like the... The sole, you know, provider of coffee to dancing goats in Decatur. Decatur. I'm so sorry. Did you just say dancing goats? <laughs> yes, that's the name of the coffee shop. Is dancing? They goats. are a sole provider to dancing oh. goats. <laughs> is what I just heard. That's amazing. I feel like I want to be the person who is a sole <laughs> provider of coffee to dancing goats. And would they be dancing goats if they didn't drink coffee? That's what I want. Oh, man, probably not. They'd be tired goats. Exactly right. I want them hopped up on caffeine, and I want them dancing goats. <laughs> dance. Dance, goats, dance. Big. What do they dance to? Like, what kind of music are they dancing to? That's what I'm into. All kinds. Are they clogging? I mean, with their hooves? I was kind of thinking umbop. Like, from Hanson, umbop? Yeah. Umbop. 
I'm a good guy, <laughs> clip, clap. <laughs> do it all for a um, band. <laughs> we've gone off the rails. Oh my God, we've gone off the rails of this podcast already. It is Jesus. A scary. It was a scary proposition to be like, you know what? We're going to put Jess and Andrew's friendship on display for everyone. <laughs> Take back the curtain so you can see what stupid shit we talk about when we hang out. Take back the curtain. Take me to coffee. Anybody out there, that's what our podcast is called, if you haven't gotten it already. So thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> what have you been up to? Oh, my God. What, have I, what haven't I been up to? I really, um, I don't know what you've been up to. Been listen, I, I've just been, there's a lot of things right now. You know, uh, you know, I'm an actor. We're, we're actors, and that's what we do. And this is like kind of where I, my lifeblood is. And I've just been really... I've been, you know, I've been working in Chicago for the last two years doing, you know, Hamilton, the whole thing. I'm pretty sure we talked about that on previous episodes, but um, I'm going through a process right now where I'm kind of getting myself back into the game of auditioning, which is weird for me. And I'm feeling a little bit vulnerable. And if you know me, vulnerability is not a strength of mine, but I'm trying to embrace it. Okay. I'm really trying to embrace it in my older age. I'm getting older. I'm admitting it. I don't have a problem with it. It is weird for me to get back into the, it's like, it's like dating, right? Like I've been married for 10 years. If I was to, you know, God, whatever reason, become unattached and had to go back into the dating game, that's what auditioning for something. If you've been in a long running show, auditioning for something is, right? This is a roundabout way of me saying that like, I'm scared to audition again, really. The last week, that's what I've been like kind of dealing with is like my own insecurities. And I feel like this is my therapy session, but I didn't pay anyone. (laughs) And you don't want my opinion. That's for fucking sure. (laughs) I do not. Thank you, though. But I'll take it. I have a real question, um, which I feel like now that I'm thinking about it, it's going to sound like it's a planted question or it's trite, but it's not. I'm actually curious, like, let me back up and say like what Andrew and Emily and I all talk about, right? Is that what's neat about this podcast, particularly through the lens of two primarily theater artists is how much everybody else's lives and careers and expertise have to do with our own, like how much we're able to apply. So I guess my question really is like, has it made any impact what we've been doing on like during this week, as you've jumped back in, do you think about anything we've learned from guests? Has it changed anything? The answer could be no. I don't know. I'm just curious. No, absolutely. And I was actually thinking just, we, you know, we were just recording uh, another one before this and I was like, Oh my God, like, am I doing the right, thing like I kept going oh I've been in this I've been doing this for so long and I'm like I love it and I kind of ran through that checklist in my mind of like I know I'm I know I'm vulnerable right now i.e scared or whatever like kind of trepidatious I'm like oh you know getting back into something that you're kind of unfamiliar with and something that used to really make you excited and and fun Mm -hmm. and stuff like that but like you know it's I got a couple of months until I'm done here and I was kind of running through the checklist in my mind when we were talking to our, our last guest and I was like oh man um yeah, I'm on the right path because there's no other thing that I think that I would like want to do. Yeah, I, we dabble with the you know, the podcast thing because I'm interested in skill acquisition. Uh, I'm trying to slip that in every single time we have a podcast, by the way. <laughs> I have gone through the checklist and I'm like, oh yeah, this is exactly where I should be. And running through that checklist in my mind is something that we've learned from these guests, um, you know, hearing their stories and how they kind of pivoted into other things and did whatever. I don't think I'm at the pivot yet. You know, I'm growing as a human being because of this podcast. I'm growing as, you know, talking to all these people. I'm like, oh, you're the information is there. You're doing everything right. And it it actually kind of inspires me to like keep going down that road. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I guess like listening to that, it's the difference between doing something mindlessly and doing something intentionally because you got this sort of like vocabulary or like process by which uh, Laura Benke, who was mm-hmm. the guest yeah. that we just interviewed, you yeah. you got to hear how she came to the realization that she needed to switch what she was doing. So now you have like all this information that you can then process against your own life. And next week you get to be intentional about what you're doing because yeah, you had, you had more information. Lack of knowledge breeds ignorance. And right. um, that's one thing that we, we actually do here as skill acquirers. We so what, what's knowledge speaking of one thing, what's one thing that you'll do next week when you have your auditions and you're, you know, looking at all this stuff to like make things a little more joyful and a little less scary. I'm going to give my old, my old phrase, do me. I'm going to do me. Cause you know what that is? It's enough. It's more than enough. Sometimes it's more than anybody wants sometimes. <laughs> and you know what? I'm okay with that. Yeah, Cause that's just true. who I am. So let's go. <laughs> That's amazing.
Okay. So guys, if you haven't heard any other podcast um, episodes of our podcast, Take Me to Coffee, like t- I task you with this. Go back and listen to number one. It is absolutely brilliant. And this is why we do what we do, because it's about mentorship, it's about equality, and it's about brilliance. And you're going to get all three of those things right here on the podcast. Andrew, uh, who are we talking to today? I'm so excited. I am actually really excited. I'm surprised that we're actually drinking coffee and not drinking wine because we have a master sommelier on here, Amanda McCrossan, from wine country. Wine country. Wine country is country. Is how we say it in Missouri and Arkansas, where we are from. That is correct. You know what? She is the wine director (laughs) at Press Restaurant. Amanda oversees the largest, deepest collection of Napa Valley wines in the world and a wine list which has garnered nearly every major award and nomination for publications, including Jess. Wine Enthusiast. The James Beard Association. Who? James Beard. James Beard? What? As I stroke my beard for you Patreon viewers. Also, World of Fine Wine and Wine Spectator. Uh, And this is my favorite part. Amanda's also the creator and host of Somme Vivant. And through that, she produces wine-focused media content for Instagram and YouTube. And you know what's really cool about that, Andrew? I have a story to share. What? uh, What is it? Please. When she moved to L.A., was just about the same time that I was uh, starting Broadway Unlocked and starting to make content for Broadway Unlocked. And we have spent so many evenings together in Napa at her home. Uh, and her boyfriend is super smart and has is like really, really brilliant, gave me a thousand ideas for Broadway Unlocked. And I just, I don't know, it, from the beginning, I remember sitting around the dinner table with her and I talking about like how we were going to do the things we set out to do. And for her, she knew she wanted to create a YouTube channel and an Instagram channel um, for her content. And she hadn't done it yet at that point. And we were just talking about all the things. And I was obviously setting out to combine digital content with theater. And it's just been really neat to do it concurrently, I guess, you know, alongside someone else and get to watch, get to watch how successful she's been. Cause that girl has fucking done the work. I mean, I love to see when people put in the work about something that they're excited about, that they follow with imagination and their dream and their passion, and you see that come to fruition. And that's exactly what Amanda did. I mean, that was one of the greatest conversations we've had on here. I mean, maybe second or third in like, you know, we can't rank them or they're going to, everybody's going to get mad at us. I don't know. Are they though? Yeah. This is my own opinion, but in my, this is my own opinion. Okay. Yeah. And I, you know, I base it off of like, you know, what I learn and what I bring to the table in a conversation. And I just, I knew a lot of stuff about wine. It's all about, I knew a lot. It really comes, (laughs) (laughs) it comes back to me. All right. Oh God. Uh, My favorite thing about, I already said that, so, but I have a thousand favorite things about Amanda, but something that's really cool about the work that Amanda does, and I think you'll hear more about it in the episode too, is that like wine, uh, wine can be snotty. Wine can be overwhelming. I walk into like this awesome wine bar in my neighborhood here in New York City, and they've got all these wines from countries I didn't know existed. And you're looking at the list and you're, you know, they're like, what do you want to drink? And you're like, I don't fucking know. And it makes Daunting. you feel stupid. Yeah, it's super daunting. And what Amanda's doing that I think is so great through her channels is really like not only demystifying wine, but she's also like helping us like get to see wine vineyards when you don't live in Napa. She does these amazing tours of vineyards and she explains things like when you and her went off talking about those those terms that you said you knew about, you know. That I'm not saying out loud because I don't. <laughs> He's looking, and you can't see if you're not if you're not in Patreon. Andrew's trying to goad me into trying to say these words that I didn't know before this episode. Just simple words, tannins. Gentil. Which to the normal person would they would just say gentile. Yeah. Anyway, I just think what she's doing is super cool, and I'm really excited for all of you guys to get to like have a sneak peek into her world. And wine approachability. I think that's what she kind of like this whole thing is predicated on is wine approachability. Mm-hmm. Wine is a snooty business, and it's been this like mystical, snooty, high end thing. But like, there's so many wine purveyors out there that are so brilliant, and like, especially in the in the dot com age and the you know the technological age that we're in now with social media and stuff like that. Like, we have the opportunity to pull back the curtain and really get a good look at the wizard of wine that is Napa Valley. <sighs> I know you love it when I try to make like allusions to or some Wizard of our favorite of wine. films. That was actually really good. Fine, I'll say oh. it. Okay, uh, I appreciate you. <laughs> I appreciate you. Don't forget, if you want to be a guest on our podcast with us, head to Twitter 
follow TM2C podcast and leave us a video ask for an upcoming guest. Oh, that's what VA means. We hope you enjoy this episode of Take Me to Coffee with Amanda McCrossan. Miss Amanda McCrossan is uh, our resident somme vivant. And if, for those of you who don't know what that is, that is a, uh, a play on the words bon vivant and sommelier. Am I correct in that? You nailed it. Yeah, that's it. Oh my God. I did my homework. I literally just read that. First try. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't graduate. I don't have a degree. Oh yeah, that's like, right. I forgot. I don't have a money, degree. I suppose. Uh, nope. Still paid. Still cool. paid for it. Awesome. Still paid for it. <laughs> There's no paper on the wall. Good. Uh, my grandmother's still disappointed. RIP. So Amanda, can you tell us a little bit about um, what what it is that you do exactly as a sommelier? As a, and it's, I believe it's a second degree. Is that correct? Uh, what do you mean by second degree? Hey guys, just here doing a little editing. You will probably note that some of the audio is really fucked up in this episode. It was one of the first ones we recorded and uh, it was before we figured out we needed new settings for Zencaster, the software that we use to record multiple guests from multiple places. So, so we're super sorry, but we've gotten better and it's still a really good conversation. So hope you enjoy. Oh, I don't know. I, I read that somewhere that it was a second degree. <laughs> was like, second degree. like you have two degrees in it or you're like the level oh, of okay. sommelier. Yeah, you know Got what I mean? It. That's what I'm saying. All right. Yeah. So this thing, this part's like kind of confusing because like being a sommelier is just a vocation. And so there's no real certification you need to like be a sommelier. And all a sommelier is, is, is a glorified, we'll call it a glorified server who knows more about wine than the average Joe. So that's basically like my job is to go and talk to tables and people about wine. And then I just kind of like flutter on the dining room in a very like, and I don't mean that in like a pejorative way. Like I really do just like go to tables and I talk about wine, but my entire job is, is surrounding grape juice. That's all I do. So I the best way to put it. Yeah. You know, people, <laughs> but you're also downplaying that your taste buds are probably like more refined than anyone's in history. Well, they're honed in, right? Like I practice yeah. all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so do I. That job. Yeah. I just, I just happen to do it with vodka. Yes. Yeah. Same, same thing. Well, no. And there's honestly, like, I love hospitality. This just like takes it to the next level. And when I say, you know, I think glorified is like, yeah, I guess it's underplaying what I do because I, I actually do a lot of work during the day. A lot of my job actually happens before I even get to the restaurant. And so living in Napa Valley, I have to go to wineries all the time and go taste wine and it's really awful. <laughs> um, yeah, God. I know. I know the horror. It's it's really can you, rough. Can you tell me, other than the red Mini Cooper, do you have like a red bike that you also drive around? No, but you know what? That red Mini Cooper thing is is old. I've got to get rid of that. I actually, I got a new car. And this is kind of like one of the dirty little secrets of, of Napa Valley that I'll share with all of us, which is there is a lot of intoxicated driving that happens in this valley. And I got scared after like seeing a lot of people just like not pay attention to how much they've been drinking and we can only do so much at the restaurant. And so I was like, you know what? I need something bigger. Like if I leave work at 11 o'clock at night and I get impaled by a car, uh, mm. I'm not surviving this accident. So um, so I have a I have an SUV now. So no more red Mini Cooper. So something oh. a little a little more sizable. I know it's truly like it's as opposite as I could have gotten from a Mini Cooper. Uh, can I just take us back real quick to a, uh, a segment that I like about our podcast, Take Me to Coffee, and it's about what kind of coffee you're drinking. I know it's it's like 12 o'clock, but yeah. I want to know if you've got a cup, a cup of coffee there and what is it? Well, I finished my coffee, but I drink cold brew every day. I drink Stumptown Any particular cold brew. brand? Stumptown. Stump, okay. Yeah, Stumptown. Thanks, Stumptown. Yeah, I think Stumptown. Yeah. Actually, I, uh, I reached out to them because I did this food and wine article for food and wine magazine. It was called liquid diet. And it tra I had to track everything that I consumed that was in liquid form for a week. <laughs> and every single day it started with Girl Shiner water and Stumptown cold brew. And I sent it to Stumptown and I was like, Hey, just so you know, I drink Stumptown every day as evidenced by this article that is in food and wine magazine. It would be great if you could like hook it up. <laughs> and they were like, cool. If you ever make it to Portland, let us know. I was like, well, cool. So much for being an influencer. Fun yeah. fact about so, a Stumptown cold brew is I hate cold coffee. And Amanda took me to this amazing little bakery that's in Napa by where she lives. And she was like, no, no, just get this draft. What was it like the draft? Cold oh, the brew. nitro. 
Yeah, the yeah. nitro. And I was like, fine, I'll try it. And I loved it. It was so good. Yeah, it's like drinking Guinness. Yeah, and for those people not in the know, nitro comes from a, like, what would a beer tap would be, right? like a keg, yeah. Yeah, like a keg tap, but it's filled with nitrous. Is that correct? Is it nitrogen mixed with nitrogen? That sounds right. And yeah. And it gives it that foamy, frothy kind of thing. Yeah. And it keeps it real cold. I don't know the actual science behind it because I'm not a scientist, but well. I'm an armchair scientist. That's pretty accurate, though. It just looks like okay. if somebody poured a Guinness from a tap, that's kind of what it looks like. It's really dark. And then it's got this like white creamy foam on top and it's kind of viscous and lovely. And it's it's oh pretty uh, it's pretty caffeine laden. Yeah. You're using big sommelier words now. Viscous. Viscous. I use that word a lot, actually. It's a good word. Yeah. I love that word, though. And, well, and viscous is more of like an oily type substance. It's thicker than actual water would be. Yeah. It's because of what? Maybe like I'll let you explain this a little bit. The tannins. Or the sugars that are in wine, it makes it more viscous. Is that true? Look at you. You're like doing your research. Um, yeah, tannins, not so much, but sugar for sure. So there's two okay. ways you can achieve a higher viscosity. One would be alcohol. The other would, would be sugar. So like dessert wines are incredibly viscous because there's a lot of residual sugar. It's kind of like simple syrup. Hmm. Wines like Cabernet that have uh, maybe a higher alcohol content would also be more viscous, meaning it like coats the mouth. It maybe leaves a textural viscosity. And then there's also grape varietals that are naturally naturally going to lend themselves to being a higher viscosity wine just based on the phenolic compounds of that grape. Oh my so, God. I love, yes. I love the way you talk. I love the way that you say phenol compounds and varietal. <laughs> you know, I think when I think about wine, I always think more about textures and flavors because that means more to me than anything else. And I'm, I enjoy flavors, but textures is like a huge thing. And when I'm thinking about what I want to drink, just kind of like you're thinking about what you want to eat in the morning versus the afternoon or versus dinner. Like you're kind of thinking about the weight of that meal before you're really thinking about flavors. And I think about wine in sort of the same way. It's like, how weighty do I want this wine? Because nobody wants to sit poolside and drink a wine that feels like heavy cream. Right. They want to drink right. something that's a little less viscosity, brighter, fresher, and drinks more like almost like water. And so that's why people really love things like Pinot Grigio or lighter bodied wines poolside because it just feels more refreshing and it's easier on the palate. So we think about things like density and viscosity in relation to, to how we drink wine for that reason. Of all the things in the entire world, any human being can choose to like dig into and be really knowledgeable about. I just, I am always amazed by you and your wine knowledge. Like what, what inspired you to learn so much about this? Like, what do you love the most about wine? What drives you to keep learning all this technical information and share it with people? Well, I think you of all people know where that initially stemmed from. And that was you. <laughs> crazy that was a self-serving like that was the most self-serving question no, i've but ever it's heard true so i mean i love i love food as a kid but like you know when i moved to new york i didn't know anything about drinks or wine or anything i started working at the core club which is a maybe a subject for a different podcast or sure <laughs> this, like, whatever wild... we signed is no longer legally viable i hope right. not because i would love to share the secrets of that place this was like this is this crazy private club that exists in manhattan for ultra ultra wealthy millionaires and anyway it's like the who's who but anyway jess was working there and that's how we initially met and i i got a job at this place i still don't really know how and <laughs> jess was like a part-time bartender and so you know I, I always boil it down to the moment where she was like you need to set that vodka tonic down and like pick up this whiskey and that was sort of like the birth of my my liquid palate was jessica basically dragging me out to like whistle pig tastings before whistle pig was cool like we would i think it was like down in soho and she was like you have to try this new whiskey and that's really where it all started because i didn't care i didn't know anything about alcohol or wine or anything like that it really stemmed from like those first moments where i was you know 22 23 years old living in new york city without a clue in the world how to tackle it and i had this fellow bon vivant sort of guiding the way and showing me what was cool and what was not cool. And I was like, all right, well, I'll stick with you. You seem to know what's up. Also, here's the thing. Like Amanda played a good, like put a good game face on because I would have never known that it was also new for you. I mean, I knew a little <laughs> bit, of course, like enough, like don't drink a vodka tonic. I mean, no offense. Vodka tonics are great. No. But yeah, yeah like I, when I think back to those couple of years, I always like, oh, no, no, man. And I were just like going out to these different places and these different tastings. I don't know. It's just funny to think that you didn't know know a lot about food and bev back then because I would have never known it. Well, I was an actress back then. So yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, and there begins there the real is. story. 
Well, I had no friends. I moved to New York and I didn't know anybody. You know, I desperately wanted to be part of something more cultural in New York. Like why else move to New York if you're not going to be part of the culture scene? Yeah. And so Jess was sort of my guiding light and great friend. And that's how it started. We also got like a lot of access because of Court Club, you know, it afforded us a lot of access to places. And because someone would always know someone working at this really amazing place that the members all went to. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I feel like too, that was a real privilege and a really amazing thing to like grow and learn in that environment as as far as food and beverage goes. Right. And that's like, I mean, that's New York City in a nutshell, right? Like you just get access to things that you maybe you shouldn't have access to. (laughs) That's amazing. Oh, so, so I think that like, I'm going to, I'm going to lead this into our first question, actually. I think that's it. We found it. Hi, Amanda. I was wondering if you see really big differences between the wine cultures in the East Coast and the West Coast of the United States. Oh, man, that's a great question. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So so the answer is yes, there is a very, very big difference in cultures, maybe less so now than there was before, or maybe I'm just making that up. But New York, and I think a lot of this has to do with proximity. The East Coast in general is very European focused. They love wines from Burgundy, from Bordeaux, from Italy. They're not so into New World wines from like South America or Australia, certainly not California. And so the overarching opinion when I was living in New York was that California wines were fairly homogenized. Most of them were high octane, high high alcohol, slightly over the top. And then there also was this notion that California wines were incapable of aging. Hmm. And so when I left New York and Scott and Kelly, who were my predecessors at Press, where I'm the wine director now, we all kind of ran into the same problem, which was we were sort of pariahs like by New York standards, because New York was like, well, if you're not working with a European focused wine list, you're kind of a second class citizen. So there is like a very big divide between the sommeliers that champion California and New World wines. And New World, just in case anyone's like, what's New World mean? New World is a a term that uh, describes a region that is making wine that is not not one of the original winemaking regions, meaning they haven't been making wine for centuries and centuries. They're fairly new. And California certainly fits in that category, Australia to a certain extent, and then South America. And so that's what we consider new world versus old world. Hmm. So there is sort of like this stigma associated with these new world wines. And truthfully, like there is a little bit of merit to that. And there was a time in California's wine history where the wines were really over the top and they were big and they were high alcohol and high octane. And there are decades in California wine history that are not going Going to age as well as some of the classics. But I was quickly humbled when I came out to work with this wine list that dives back into the 50s and 60s of California winemaking, which is considered the golden age. And they are incredibly long-lived, nuanced, gorgeous, gorgeous wines. But it's taken a long time for that message to make it back to the East Coast. And so when I was in DC teaching the seminar, the first question I asked was, how many of you believe California wines are a bit homogenized? And how many of you believe that California wines are incapable of aging? And um, many people lied, of course, and didn't <laughs> didn't say they believed that. Um, but I know this to be true from experience. And so it was sort of destigmatizing California wines and showing that they could age. And we opened a 1966 Charles Krug and a 1985 Chateau Montalena um, and all these really classic wines from California. So culturally, very, very different. And it's physically evident when you look at the wine lists in New York and DC versus the wine lists in California. Interesting. Do you think that uh, that might also have something to do with like a demographic uh, of people, the people that came, you know, I'm saying like immigrants from Italy and immigrants from Germany and from all these other regions that have kind of supplied the, the mindset around wine because it's something they know to be familiar. Right. For sure. Yeah. You feel like people like crossing the country and going to California, trying to start something new. Do you think that that's why there is a a bit of a stigma there? I think to a certain extent. I mean, it's hard to assign an exact causation to why this exists the way that it does. But I do think that it does have to do with New York being such a dichotomy of different um, ethnicities and immigrants. And, you know, California certainly had, we have our fair share of immigrants as well. This entire valley was built on. Italian immigrants like Robert Mondavi and right, but right. I, I do think like culturally speaking, New York is just 
a place in DC certainly as well, just a place that uh, you are Italian and grew up with Italian wine, you're going to keep drinking Italian wine. And most people from Italy and France would say like their, you know, their home country wine is the best. Like, why would we try California wine? They've only been doing this for 50 years. We've been doing it for 500. So like, I think uh, it's pretty natural that that someone would, would think that, especially if they're, um, if they're it's, from, it's a, from it's wine pride. I mean, it's wine pride. But it's oh. wine pride. Yes, absolutely. This is a ping pong thought, like my brain going in weird places. That question and your answer also makes me think of like just human beings or maybe New Yorkers, I don't know, tendency, like how it took years and years and decades for everybody to realize that you weren't going to get murdered if you moved to Washington Heights. <laughs> it's a weird association, <laughs> sure, but I think yeah. there's something about I've experienced that sort of like lag time in yeah. processing information. <laughs> yeah. Right. Being being fearful of something new, essentially. I mean, that's well, what you're looking at. You're like, well, I can't trust that because I've never had it before. Right. And it's not cool, you know? No, it's not at all. Yeah. Nobody wants to be uncool in New York. Yeah. That's true. And especially with wine, like since we're talking about culture, I'm always also just fascinated by like how you... S- what what you would say attributes to wine culture um because it has such a you know there's such a prestige to it and there's like some money involved and all the things and it seems like there are a lot of forces at play in creating that culture around wine do you have any general thoughts about that <laughs> well i think that's part of the reason that wine is so difficult to get into is that it is sort of this thing that's seen as part of a more gentil class right even going back hundreds of years it was the dignitaries and the royals that were drinking the great wines and then the peasants on the streets were drinking the not so great wines so there there always has been this sort of like class divide associated with wine it's not an easy thing to break into and so i I think most people that know wine either have learned it because their families have passed down that information from generation to generation and their grandfather had a crazy wine collection or there's somebody like me whose parents had Sutter home in the garage mm-hmm. and <laughs> and I was like well that's not going to work for me I'm just going to try to learn it myself and so there is like sort of like the haves and the have nots when it comes to the wine world and it's very very difficult to learn about wine like over the last 10 years I think there's been more accessibility and more places to learn about it. But like, I don't know, Jess, if you remember, like when I first started learning, like the whole reason I got into wine, aside from wanting to drink better things was I wanted to learn about it, but I didn't have a place to start. And Arnaud was really the only person that I could go and talk to Mm. about wine who would answer my questions. And by the way, Arnaud is this great sommelier from Le Bernardin who had started at Core Club and he had so much passion and enthusiasm for it. And truthfully, he was the only one that I could sit down and ask a question to without feeling like an idiot for asking it. Mm. And that was, that was pretty rare back then. Like there weren't a lot of places or people I could talk to about wine and get accurate answers without feeling like a like a second class citizen. Remember when we asked him to we were like, why you've got to put the wine lists on iPads. We're yeah. so modern here and it will be so much easier and you'll have so much more flexibility. He was like, no. Yeah. There has to be paper. Yes. And by the way, we use a um, an iPad wine list at press now. <laughs> and it it is in fact easier and more modern and way more fun. Yeah. What did he say? Like that there was some like weight and gravity to, I thought his answer made sense actually at the time. Yeah. I mean, it's like one of those like stereotypical answers, like grandpa, like, why don't you wear new, new pants? And he's like, cause I've had these for 50 years and they work, it's you know, so like, <laughs> I don't know. Cause but, I mean, it's, it's the not... same reason why people like want to, it's the same reason that people want to have like a physical crossword in their hands. They don't want to do it on their phones. You know yeah. I, mean? like, I like the feel of a pen and paper, you know what yeah. I mean? It comes it comes with a different thing. I, I want to read a book as opposed to reading on an iPad. I prefer the book. Yeah. That conversation is interesting because everything is predicated on one thing. To match the gravitas of the wine, we must have paper or the experience of feeling paper. But if you like pro-con it and columns, you know what I mean? What we had talked to him about was like, if you have an iPad, you have this really easy opportunity for people to learn more about wine, right? If they're confused, you can immediately like tap one thing, <laughs> right? And get like... Like all this right. information about this class As opposed of wine. to having 15 pages to be like, well, I have to section of, of this one name, yeah. right? I mean, right, how many right. of us have ever been at a restaurant and we're like, uh, you tell me what to drink. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Hundreds and thousands of times. Yeah. Well, and it's true. The part of this industry and is sort of like predicated on the belief that we should, it should be elite. It should be something that people can't normally get access to. And I think for some sommeliers, and I won't include myself in this, I think there is this feeling of like, if I make it too easy, then I won't have a job, which 
is oh, absurd because I promise you there's still a lot of work to be done. But I do think that there's this moat and it sort of exists in every industry where that's we build this moat around our specific industries, whether it's a vernacular or whether it's just a general understanding of something. And for the wine industry, it's vernacular. So obviously, like, you know, nobody wants to be caught dead using the wrong words. Like, God forbid you use tan in the wrong way. And then mm. there's also this notion of like, if you put a whole three pages of the same wine with different vintages and different cuvées, then they're going to have to ask questions. And so it like forces this conversation to be had and this confusion that that surrounds it. And I think that's maybe part of the problem with the wine industry and why so many people are intimidated by it is because we have this mode and we refuse to break it down for anybody. Oh, that's so. It's, it's, an, it's like an elitism. And I feel, For you know, sure. I mean, when you start talking about wine with people, you're like, oh, well, no, 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 it's this, 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 and this. And then you get like very heated mm-hmm. conversations that I've seen between people because some people just don't have the words for it. You're like, well, I like right. this wine, but I can't describe how. And guess what? None of us know. That's the big secret. <laughs> None of us know. It, this is all subjective. You're like, yeah. The only thing we can ever possibly know is like what it tastes like to you and me and like and you personally. Aside from that, there's too many variables in this industry. Like we can't really assign causation to like why a certain wine tastes the way it does. Sure, we have like strong theories and this right. is the notion of like terroir and vintage and soil types and things like that, but none of us really know why wine tastes the way it does other than like right. varietal. But there hasn't been like studies that have been done that are like okay because you know Etna blew up in, you know, the early 1400s, you're like, okay, well, that caused the ash that came into the stones and the ground. You know what I mean? Like there's well, sure. science behind it, right? I mean, there's well, got to be some way to. Right. But it's not a, it's not black and white. There's a lot of, right. there's a lot of things like, sure. It can be very, you know, volcanic soils produce X wines and certain vintages produce X wines. But like the reality is winemaking is a stochastic process in that you take one substance, put it in a black box and it comes out another. (laughs) And so, and we really don't know other than like the actual science behind fermentation and some of the things that happen scientifically, we don't really Mm -hmm. know why certain wines taste the way they do. You know, some sommeliers even argue that there is no such thing as minerality in a wine. Some sommeliers will argue that minerality comes from the soil. And the reality is like, None of us really know. I, we think that's probably what causes it. And we can certainly assign correlations here and there. And we can blind taste. And based on knowledge that we've acquired over the past few years and, and doing research and traveling, there's certainly things that are more than likely the case. But we don't know for sure. They're theories. We have the best question to follow this, by the way. Oh, and a special question uh, from one of our other guests we've had on the podcast, Ami Dar, who is the founder of Idealist.org, the largest job board in the world for nonprofit and volunteer opportunities. Sweet. Hello, my name is uh, Ami Dar. I'm the founder of Idealist.org. And my question is about, is this whole white t- wine tasting thing for real, because I saw this video recently where a bunch of uh, red wine tasters were actually given white wine and red wine bottles, and no one caught on to it. They were like commenting on how awesome the red wine was, and it was it was white. So forget the whole like gradation of quality. They didn't even see that. They didn't even realize it was white wine. So is this whole thing for real, or is everyone just BSing us uh, across this whole wine thing? <laughs> I mean, I think it was on Vox, right? Oh my god! Yeah, it was on Vox. Yeah, yeah, I've seen it, and it was a blind. It was a blind tasting, and these like five five people were like, "Yeah, so I'm I'm an experienced wine sommelier or some level of it," and they were like, uh, started tasting this blind, and they were like, they didn't had no idea it was white. They kept commenting on how the red was so lush. It was amazing. Oh my god, that is amazing. I have not seen this, but I have heard variations of of. Or versions of like a blind tasting like this. Um, yes, the reality is most people, whether they're sommeliers or not, are not going to be able to discern between a red, white, and rosé wine without looking at the color, whether it's BS or not. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'd love to say that it, like if you gave me a wine in a black glass, I'd be able to discern whether or not it's red or white. And probably to an extent I could because there are certain flavor compounds that can only exist in reds and there's certain that can only exist in whites. What's really, really difficult is to discern between a rosé and a red wine. That's where like things get a little bit tricky. Yeah. I mean, everyone's sort of like BSing each other. Like the emperor is not wearing clothes sometimes, right? Like you're all sort of posturing about (laughs) knowing about wine. 
But the reality is like most of us, if you don't take the time to study it every day, and I'm not saying that everyone should, but if you if you don't take the time to study it, then like, sure, you're going to be confused. I think there's, I think that's a perfectly normal thing that happened in that blind tasting. I'm not surprised in the least because the other problem is most of us are not trained as kids and sure as shit not as adults to associate words with smells and tastes. It's not mm-hmm. something that we're taught, especially as American um, American kids growing up. And so like you hear something and you can associate the sound with it. You see something, you can associate what that word goes with that sight. But as far as the other two senses being uh, smell and taste, a lot of us aren't trained to associate. And that's really what separates a sommelier or wine professional from someone that's just drinking wine is that we we practice that word association with what we're smelling, what what we're tasting. So it's not necessarily BS. It's just we don't have the vernacular as normal people who are not trained to do that day in and day out. And that's that's what we do. Um, So we'll basically take like – there's this thing called a noisetia, and it's a kit. Uh, Would you just say uh, that one more time? Noisetia. Yeah. So there's this thing called like le nez du vin, and it's the like the nose of the wine, and uh-huh. they give you like these little capsules filled with uh, intensely pungent smells, and you train yourself to like it's like flashcards, but with smells. To describe the smell yeah. that you're smelling in yeah. the words that you've exactly. I mean, it is such a new, and it is also such a new thing. That's what I find yeah. interesting about the vernacular. It is like learning a new language, totally. But the beginning of language, like grunts and snorts, you know, of like the human <laughs> the human race, yeah. like oh, it's so new. There's yes. no words for it, and you've got to make up things that you do to like kind of put them all in the in a class or something, and say, hey this is kind of what I feel like it is and then try to make up a word for that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Most of us are just taught to like say whether we like it or don't like it. We're not necessarily taught to associate the actual words with it. Descriptiveness. Yeah. It's not necessarily BS. I mean, I think there is a certain level of like bullshit associated with what we do. It's just in a trained versus untrained palate and nose who can discern between what you might expect from a red wine versus what you might expect from a white wine. And all we're doing when we're blind tasting is taking everything that we've learned, boiling it down and trying to just trying to figure out like where that wine might have come from. There's little clues here and there that we can pick up on. Like yesterday, I had to blind taste a wine and I could look at the color and say, well, there's like flecks of green in this wine, which lends itself to being you know, one of maybe three grapes. And then you stick your nose in the glass and there's certain fruits that are associated with certain certain grapes. And then you assess the quality of those fruits, whether it's really ripe or a little bit underripe, um, whether it tastes like it's been baked into a pie. And then you can associate climate with that because the riper the fruit, the more likely it's going to be from a warm climate or from a warm vintage. And then you get to the palate. And again, you're sort of like picking out these little pieces to diagnose what that wine could possibly be based on this information that you're gathering. And the only way you can do that is if you have the actual words and associations to to get to the final conclusion. That is fucking amazing. You're a grape juice scientist. Yes. You're a fu- no, you're you're a fucking detective. Yes. You're a grape yes. juice detective. Yes. It's That's exactly so what it sick. is. That's amazing <laughs> yeah, to me. Yeah, it's not a card trick. It really is just like, you know, I've talked to like doctors about this and I was like and you know, a lot of doctors are like I'm trying to understand wine and learn about wine. And I'm like, well, you know, you ever like have a patient who comes in and she's like, you know, my ears hurt, my eyes hurt and I have like a swollen ankle and you're like, oh, that's probably blah, 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 blah. Gout. That's what blind tasting is. I mean, it's deductive yeah. reasoning. I mean, that's kind <laughs> exactly. of what you're doing. It's critical exactly. thinking your way through with a skill set or a knowledge base. And then you yes. like pick and poke and go, oh, it's this and this and this and this. And you lead yourself to like one of three outcomes. Yes. Right. It's a choose your own adventure. Diagnosing wine. <laughs> yes. It's amazing. That's so fucking brilliant. We actually have another good question on that topic. Are you influenced by preconceived notions you have about certain brands or types of wines when you're tasting, or do you have the ability to overcome those preconceived notions if you have them? I'm just so curious about that. Oh, yes. Um, 100%. (laughs) I don't think there's a... I mean, if anybody were ever to say no to that question, they're 100% lying. It is impossible to separate yourself from preconceived notions and from stigmas associated with brands. Because if you know the brand, you're naturally going to have a feeling about them. And whether or not they rise to the occasion or not in the glass, that's going to give you a feeling about the wine. So you know, it it definitely influences things. It's part of the reason that I have such an issue with wine scores is because a lot of the critics mm. know the wines that they're tasting when they're tasting them. They're not tasting these wines blind. If you go into a wine tasting 
at Harlan, you're probably going to be more likely to like the wine because it's Harlan, because you've liked it in the past. If you go into a winery that you've never heard before, you go in completely blind without a preconceived notion, but it doesn't mean that you're going to like the wine or dislike the wine. So I think it's absolutely impossible to separate yourself from, you know, how you feel about something. Like, Jess, if I gave you a glass of wine and I told you it was like yellowtail and you tasted like, eh, is garbage. But if I told you, I was like, hey, this wine is like $100 a glass, you may not like it, but you may pay attention to it more. Absolutely. 100%. We have this conversation all the time because some of my friends in LA, they'll get a wine. I'm like, oh, I don't like it. And I'm pretty sure I can taste the different, like I think in my mm-hmm. head, like I can taste a really cheap wine, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. I really don't know. If you gave it to me <laughs> blind, I'd probably be that asshole who'd do what you just said I would do. Yeah. No. Hundred dollars a glass. You're like, oh, the, oh, mm, yeah. No, the tannins is amazing. Oh, look at the legs on that thing. You're like, oh, this is delicious. And you go, that's fucking cupcake. Oh my god, you just touched on one of my favorite words in the wine vernacular, which is legs. People <laughs> love to talk about the legs of a wine, and yeah. I just think it's so funny because it's like, and I really try not to judge people, and they're like, oh, the legs are so great, or like whatever. And I, every time they do it, I'm like, you know, the legs aren't really telling you much about the quality of the wine. Like, just so we're clear, like good <laughs> legs don't mean like the ass is going to be great too. Like that doesn't, they're not associated. Oh, I love that illusion. (laughs) (laughs) So, but what do the legs tell you as far as like viscosity, sugar content, things like that? Does it, a tannin trail down the, you know, like a tannin trail down the thing? Jesus, did you like do your First of all, that sounds like a skid mark. (laughs) Secondly. It essentially is a wine skid mark. mark. And secondly, you are showing off. It's so annoying. showing (laughs) off. I just haven't, I have a very vast knowledge base. (laughs) He's got like, he's got Wikipedia in front of him for sure. And he's Googling like, what does legs mean? Guys, my eyes are flicking back and forth. I'm just reading all this right now. (laughs) It's just, it's one of those web pages you can find, which I use all the time when I'm writing words about wine. And he's just got a list of words. I am being a sommelier right now. I'm cr- deductively finding my way through this <laughs> conversation. It. Hey, you find your way to California. I'll give you a job. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're going to regret the day you said that. I promise. <laughs> You're going to be running bottles, but you'll have a job. Um, hey, uh, yes. Legs are are just uh, a result of viscosity. So thin legs, lower viscosity, more than likely it's going to be either a lower alcohol wine or, or wine with no residual sugar. A higher viscosity wine, higher alcohol, uh, or potentially sugar content. Great. So literally has nothing to do with the quality of the wine. Quite literally nothing to do with the quality of the wine. Great. So people get that yeah. out of your head. If you spin the glass around, you sniff it, it's going to give you more than what you're looking down the side of the glass. Yeah. And, you know, I think it does like bring up this this very awkward exchange when I'm at the table and people have to taste the wine to like ensure that it's okay. And there's this really awkward like 10 seconds of me standing with the bottle in front of a guest as they like, and for a lot of people, this is like the first time they're ever doing it because they've come to Napa Valley and they have wanted to do this their whole lives. And now they've ordered a bottle of wine and I'm standing in front of them, basically assuming that they have, they, they know what's going on. And so there's this like kind of uncomfortable, awkward dance that happens. <laughs> oh, man. And I don't like, I always like try to like put people at ease because I, you know, it's kind of like they're having sex for the first time. And I'm like, like, it's really normal. And so I never like I never know what to say because I'm like, all right, like I've done this before, but I know you're a virgin. So like, you know, let's let's get this out of the way. But without talking about right, being a virgin. Right. But there's like, gotta be a little bit of pressure that you know that too. There's so much pressure. Plus if you're like with family or with people, and when yes. somebody pours a glass of wine in front of me and I'm like, I don't want to taste this fucking thing. Because there is like this? a level of expectation of like well, you've chosen the person, the yeah. alpha at this table or whatever. And then you're like, oh yeah, no, I know mm-hmm. what I'm doing. Yeah, no, yeah, and that's, ex- that's exactly the word that I look around the table like apologizing. I'm like apologizing to everybody being like, uh-huh, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. But like that apology also sets off the tone for the wine for the rest of the evening. And you're yeah. like, I, I guess it's good. Do you check it out yourself and find out, you know? <laughs> so one of the things we do at the restaurant to sort of make this whole exchange a little bit easier is we taste, we check every bottle before serving it. And part of that has to do with the fact that we're serving such old wines that most people have never had in their lives before. Mm. So we, you know, we'll open the bottle, make sure it's okay. And then we sort of make the call as to whether or not we decant it. And then we'll maybe also decide which glass it should go in. Cause not all Cabernet, especially with age wants to go in like a big opulent, big 
Bordeaux glass, sometimes they want smaller vessels. And so if they're tasting the wine and they like, I can feel that they're a little bit uncomfortable. A lot of times, like I'll just say, hey, just, you know, I did check it. It's, it's clean without fault. Just make sure that you agree. And so a lot of times that like, that puts people at ease. If I already have like a semi rapport with them, sometimes I'll just kind of joke and be like, does it smell like wine or does it smell like socks? And if it smells like socks, let's talk about it. Cause <laughs> we're, gonna take it we're probably not right. going to serve this wine. I feel like, though, I've had some orange wines lately that smell like socks and they're delicious. Oh, well, good. Yeah, I think some wines do smell like socks in a good way. But like if I've sold you a 2016 Napa Cabernet that I've like told you is supposed to smell like cherries and raspberries and it smells like socks, then like that's not a great sign. For sure. We got trouble in we River City. We got trouble City in River City, there. folks. Do you know how many musical theater references I've made? For those of you who don't know. If you look at Press's Instagram, like table. at least once a week, I'm making some sort of like musical theater reference because I run the Instagram on there and I always wonder if like anybody's going to pick it up and like most of the time it just flies into the reader. But for those of you into musical theater, and check it out. I just realized I don't follow Press. What is their Instagram? Press Napa Valley at Press Napa Valley. All one. Great. All one. And for, and for those of you not in the know and you're just listening to this because you're, you're whinies or winos, what do you call yourselves? Yeah, wino. Somebody who likes wine? Just somebody who likes wine? Yeah, wino. Yeah, is... wino. Sure, wino. Not, there's no negative yeah. connotation to that. You're literally just like wine. It's kind of, I know, but it always like sounds so like pejorative. Like I don't. I don't love that word. Yeah, of course it does. I mean, does, because yeah. we've been told all our lives, we're like, oh, yeah, he's yeah. just a wino. He's a sot. You know, you're like, Where's okay. Where's coming up with these Is words? that what you said? Yeah. Someone who's constantly drunk. Oh, I've never heard that word. Guys, I told you, my lexicon is vast. Wow. It's impressive. <laughs> it's oh, my it's God. so gross. I hate it's you so, gross. so much. Don't say that. Anyways, I was going to say, like, we make musical theater illusions <laughs> because musical theater really does get to the heart of the human condition. Everything I ever learned, I learned from musical theater. There's a lot of things where I was like, I probably won't know that if I had not heard that in a musical. I'm not kidding you. And not just because sure. I'm in musical theater, but literally because I was like, oh, I had no idea. And then it made me go down the rabbit hole of like, oh, that's interesting. What is that? And I would follow the, the breadcrumbs to the answer to that. And I was like, oh, God, I found so many wonderful things. I love it. Can I just tell you something funny that happened this morning that is like was just so perfectly timed? I was at the farmer's market and I bought some eggs and <laughs> the woman gives me a 10 back and she said, here's your Hamilton. And I was like, it was 830. And I was like, what? She was like, your Hamilton, your $10 bill. She's like, you know, that's what the kids are calling it, right? And I was like, excuse me, what? And she was older. She was like, you know, had grandkids. And she said, yeah, my kids and my grandkids don't ask me for dollar bills anymore. They said, grandma can have a Hamilton. She said, see, art's not dead. The only reason they know that is because of Hamilton. The musical. Yeah. Oh, so the, yes, the but musical we've all not heard of. I, I did see this morning on the subway on the way down here, a very tiny little girl with her family on the way to the beach. And she was wearing this huge, the A-ham hat. A-da-ham. Nice. A-da-ham. Yeah, the A-da-ham. And, but it's like, was so big on her. And she's just yeah. reading a book, probably like the biography of <laughs> Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> right. It was like Ron Chernow. She's like, yeah, that's so funny. Oh, my God. Oh, totally. so listen. I can't imagine being a kid. Well, how can you not imagine being a kid? I mean, you're no, like, like right now, like you're her- still a child. Well, that's not entirely true. Well, I mean, but... I'm still a child. I'm 40 years old and I'm still a child. I can't imagine like being a 13 year old right now. Like all the information you have at your fingertips. Like, do you remember? Like when I was a kid, like Encyclopedia Britannica just hit like the CD-ROM. Like that was the extent of information I had. And so like you had to wait for the update. You didn't have Google to start like telling you about the entire planet. Right. This is crazy. I'm so jealous. Let me do you one better. We had the set of Encyclopedia Britannicas <laughs> and we had to wait to be able to afford the next version. So I missed I missed whole next, yeah. like years of information and definitions and things because we had to skip to the next set because we couldn't afford I the next it. sequential set. So I I just missed Do so you know much. what's what's so fucking crazy? And I'm so curious to see how this continues to play out with this podcast. We had this exact conversation yesterday. Yesterday. No, you did taping not. with yes, Omni and yeah. Abby from Idealist. We got to talking about like whether or not kids read books anymore and whether that's counterbalanced by the access to information that we didn't have. I mean yeah. Exact conversation. It's so funny that it's on so many people's minds. And it's interesting too to me because we're mm-hmm. of an, of a certain age where we are on the cusp of the internet. We are half one foot in, one foot out. Like we didn't have, I didn't have a cell phone until college. And you know, that was in the right. early 2000s. But now kids are like, they come out of the womb with the cell phone. That's normal. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, okay. That's- it is so weird. Oh, did you see that thing that they're getting horns? Did you see that? Nerd, nerd neck. Yes, kids. They're finding like right back I here. I just saw that the other day. Developing like a like a bone spur, where the yeah, head is resting in a position this way, and they're cre- it's creating like a, a vestigial kind of a horns, honestly, oh, down the back out. of the skull to make up for the weight 
that's changed wow. in the forward lane. It's very interesting. Chiropractors across America are like dying right now. Listen, I feel like maybe it's time for another question because we could go on that subject all day long. Hi, I host a podcast with a friend and that friend keeps bothering me in the evenings, texting me, asking me how to use Instagram to help promote the show, how to use a swipe up feature. So based on what you've learned along the way, what are your top three tips for him so he'll quit bothering me? Oh my gosh. Wow. Such a beautiful voice that asked the question. What a good question. I'll never never stop bothering you. (laughs) (laughs) I fucking just trolled. (laughs) We got trolled on my own podcast. (laughs) This really happened. Last night I was trying to work and he kept texting me to ask me if he did it right. No, because they got mad at me. For not adding the swipe up feature. Well, you have the capability, right? You've got over 10,000. I'm on Instagram. I don't use it. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. So use the thank, yeah, thank you. It means next to nothing to me, but okay. All right. Top three Instagram tips. Is that what we're, is that the question? Because I did get a little distracted listening to your voice and hearing, hearing you'd like troll him. Yeah. Well, people do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. But you like, yeah, what you, not, not the shit you read in an article on HuffPost. Like what has worked for you or what have you really enjoyed doing? I, well, I love Instagram stories and I, I think that is the place where I can have the most fun and creativity without it being, without it like bogging me down. And so I use a lot of third-party apps to like help me craft some cool stories. One of them is called Unfold. And those are really nice for like, when you've got like a lot of different pictures and you have a lot of wording and you want it to come out all pretty. um, I use Unfold a lot. I use that because Um, of you, by the way. Thank you. Oh, good. Mm -hmm. I really love it. I also use Later to schedule all of my posts for um, for press. I don't use it so much for my own personal because so much of what I do is kind of on the fly. But if you're somebody that wants to like schedule things out and you're you're using Instagram as a professional platform or something that you do to like promote your own promote your business, promote your brand, whatever, I do think Later is great. And it also gives you insight into further analytics so that you can iterate and figure out like when to post and who's watching and like how what the performance was. Let's see. And the third one, I love the long form Instagram post. I use every single character and I wish more people did. Like to me, I treat it like my blog and I treat it like a place to to have like a conversation. And I guess like my I guess my last one would be like the DMs are so powerful and people underutilize the DMs and don't treat them with the professional respect that they deserve. I've gotten more opportunities and um had better conversations in the DMs than probably anywhere else to the point where on my business card, I don't even put my email anymore. I only have my Instagram and my YouTube channel. And so anybody that wants to do any sort of like work with me on the zombie Vaughn side of things, I just say, you know, check me on on Instagram because also, by the way, I don't really want them emailing me without first checking to see what I do to make sure it falls in line with what some of their strategies are. And so it sort of like forces that. Right. You were saying like mistakes with DMs. Can you give us like a couple of examples of like things not to do or to do with your DMs? Because I actually don't know a whole lot about that. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I love hearing from people and I love getting questions in the DMs. And so if you make yourself available in the DMs, like I think a lot of people know, feel like they know me via the DMs better than they know me like via my actual posts. And it adds this sort of like personal element and it sort of brings this small town business into it where you're like kissing hands and shaking baby or kissing babies, shaking hands. <laughs> that was super no, weird. I like, no, I like it the first way. I like it the first way better. <laughs> um, I always say like, you know, it may take me like a day or two, but I always go back through the DMs and make sure I respond to everyone who asks me a question and um, wants to get some answers. But I think that's great though. It is, it is a little bit of a personal touch and I like the analogy that it is kind of a small business, um, you know, <laughs> kissing hands, shaking babies. That's <laughs> Sorry, the greatest yeah. thing I've ever heard. That's so brilliant. Uh, <laughs> just the visual of that makes me laugh a lot. Yeah. It all goes down in the DMs. It really does. Um, that's cool. So, how much? What do you? What do you do in your like? As far as an influencer, do you get approached by other people to push other products and things like that? Are you allowed to do that as an influencer? Do you? Are you an influencer? Like, how does that? How does that work? I don't know. This like this is brand new territory for all of us. I think at this point, and the word influencer is, is still a very new word. I think by default, yes, I'm an influencer in that I'm a trust agent, so I have influence over people, but I don't necessarily take deals just to like influence someone like it has to be 
a little bit mm-hmm. more organic. And so I say no to far more things than I say yes to. What you just said, that's so important that you're, you see yourself as a trust agent, which yes. can be in conflict with like in breaking that trust. Yes. Yeah, the politicized view of an influencer. Because when I hear influencer, it feels somebody who's trying to sell me something, maybe yes. in a nefarious way or whatnot. But like a trust agent is something that I'm actually like akin to. I like really want that. I want to seek that out. And I think that's kind of like where we're headed as a society anyway. I think, you know, there's going to be more opportunities for people in these sort of narrow niche spaces to be trust agents. And yeah. so like for you, Jess, whether that's you know, an entrepreneur or in the musical theater world or whatever it may be, or in the, you know, philanthropic community, I think, you know, you will always be seen as someone who can be trusted, like you have vetted yourself. And so by extension, people will listen to everything that you have to say, because you've always done the right thing. An influencer could could be a trust agent, but doesn't, they don't necessarily go hand in hand. And so I treat it as I'm a trust agent first. And if I, if I want to talk about a product, then I guess I'm an influencer, but it's not the other way around. Anything that I'm recommending, I have fully vetted myself. And so it's sort of like the Tim Ferriss model where, um, you know, you have to use a product or try something out for many months before saying, yes, this is thumbs up for me or no. And I, you know, I'm also, I operate on the positive side of things. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm also very careful to never call myself like a wine critic or a reviewer or anything like that. And it's also why I don't take product or review wines, because I only want to talk about things that I think are relevant to your life that you might enjoy. I don't want to talk about why I hated something. Just like that serves no purpose to me. Right. I love that attention to detail. It's such an important I know. nuance. Yeah, yeah. And Thanks. I learned from the yeah. best, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're nearing the end of the conversation. What have you got going on coming up? Is there anything? What what to what you do this thing at wine school at Napa at, at your restaurant? What's that? Yeah, this so this actually st- it's called Sunday School at Press, and it sort of stems out of these conversations that I was having as a sommelier at Press, which is sort of the winemakers' water cooler. So we're like right in the heart of Napa Valley. We've got a really cool wine list. So a lot of winemakers and wine professionals and vintners come and sit at the bar, come to the restaurant. And so we were having these really cool conversations that couldn't really exist in any other capacity. Like we couldn't go to the winery, sit down and have a tasting and have the conversations we were having. Meaning like I was getting to know these winemakers on a different level. And that sort of lent itself to my understanding of some of the decision making that, that they were having at the wineries. So like, you know, I think the a perfect example was this winemaker, Dan Petrosky, who is the San Francisco Chronicle winemaker of the year. Mm. He really loves um, drinking martinis and he pays really close attention to some of the smaller details. And I was noticing that at the restaurant. And so it made sense to me when he was like, oh, I'm going to make my own vermouth and oh, I'm going to like make my own beer, but I'm going to do it in this way in Charleston. And so I started understanding based on what they were drinking at the restaurant and what they were talking about at the restaurant, some of the deeper philosophical things that they were thinking about and how that translated into the wine. And so I was like, well, that's a really cool thing that we have access to. How can we open that up to a few more people? So I started this thing called Sunday School at Press. And once a month, we invite a vintner or winemaker to come in and we sell anywhere between 15 and 20 tickets. I cap it there because anything more than that is just like kind of obnoxious. And they come and they sit and we call it like a podcast without a podcast and they can talk about whatever they want. So whether it's like, you know, what they had for breakfast or like a podcast they listen to or like what's going in the winery, it's just an opportunity to have a conversation. And then I just tell them to bring wines that they've either made or that inspire them or things that they are looking toward for the future or things that have been integral in their past. And we just have a conversation for about 90 minutes in our wine cellar and that's it. It's really simple, but it's been really well received and we sell out every class within an hour of the tickets going on sale. And if people want to come to that, where do they get tickets? Right. Um, they can, yeah, they can follow Sunday School at Press. So it's at Sunday School at Press on Instagram. First access goes out to our email list and it generally sells out uh, exclusively to the email list. So you can go to sundayschoolatpress.com or Instagram, which is at Sunday School at Press and get on the email list and sign up. You're fucking amazing. That's nah. that's amazing. <laughs> this has been the best conversation. And then she drops the mic. We we actually need that back. Yeah. <laughs> Oopsie. Yeah. Thanks for spending time with us. And if you're listening and you want to have a really fun time on Instagram, learning more about wine, where can they find you? 
they can find me on Instagram at somvivant, S-O-M-M-V-I-V-A-N-T, or on YouTube if you uh, like longer form content and videos at somvivant there as well. Interestingly, my demographic is split men heavy on YouTube, female heavy on Instagram. So if you're a man, I'll see you on YouTube. If you're a woman, I'll probably see you on Instagram. It's very odd. Interesting. <laughs> Allegedly, uh, more men do all of their internet research on YouTube than women. Oh, that's... Yeah, they're trying to like figure out life on YouTube. Porn. Yeah, I don't know about that. I think there's different websites, but maybe. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what better note to end it on than porn, honestly. Isn't that all we're doing? It's all porn in one, one way or the other. Exactly. Take me to coffee porn. <laughs> See you next week. We did it. That was so much fun. <laughs> Again, what another great episode with another amazing human being. I am Amanda positive. Crawford. I could have talked about that. I have so many questions about wine always that I could have done another hour of that easily. Easily. I mean, it was so crazy to me where like the, the conversation ended up going. And it's so funny because I don't think that we're just innately boring people or like we're... Speak for yourself. Oh, I was talking about you, but <laughs> it's kind of interesting to me how the, all the conversations kind of lead to similar places. Yeah, I wonder I wonder it's, how much of that is like because in our brains we're thinking right. about it or right. I don't know or just what's going on in the world, but it's true. Yeah, it's it's but the thing is, right? We're having a bunch of like amazing conversations with some of the most creative, intelligent, accomplished people and, you know, it's not super eclectic. Yes. Oh my god, yeah. And maybe that's one theme that like kind of runs through the entire world right now especially in you know accomplished people maybe that's what that is that thread that ties everybody together is just we're thinking about the same things yeah that means we're accomplished andrew god i hate to say that out loud I, <laughs> yeah don't not, it, don't it, jinx it, it freaks me out it freaks <laughs> me out to say it out loud actually Totally. Um, so don't forget, if you want to follow Amanda on Instagram, and I highly recommend it, you can find her at Som Vivant. That's the same place you can find her on YouTube. And if you want to uh, check out Sunday School at Press, if you're going to be in Napa Valley, head to that their website and you can get on their email list to get tickets. Absolutely do that. <laughs> also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at TM2C Podcast. That way you can ask questions for our upcoming guests. And they're going to be some great guests. We have some really good people lined up. I'm kind of excited I'm about it. so excited. Yes. And that's it for this episode of Take Me to Coffee. You know what's coming next. Now it's your turn. One, check out new episodes every Thursday on your favorite podcast, Bibbly Bobbly Boobly Boob Thingy. Don't say boobs, dose, for special bonus content, including boobs. Uh, <laughs> <Boobs>. seeing <laughs> a lot of. <laughs> no, wait. <laughs> Anyway, that video content lives over at Patreon. And, and if you're in our coffee club, you get to see it. That's www.patreon.com slash TM2C podcast. Uh, and for just a tiny contribution of $5, you can make a big impact on this show. Your contribution helps us continue to make this podcast for you, with you, completely ad-free. No one tells us what to do. It never gets old saying that. No one tells us what to do. <laughs> three download these episodes leave us a review you know the drill uh and we look forward to seeing you over on the social medias i'm jess i'm andrew and see we... you next week next week <laughs> 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 Let you out the door.